In one particular Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown and Lucy and Linus were laying on their backs on the ground, looking up into the sky, and Lucy says, if you use your imaginations, you can see lots of things in the cloud formations. What do you think you see, Linus? Linus responds, well, those clouds up there look like the map of the British Honduras on the Caribbean. And that cloud looks a little like the profile of Thomas Eakins, the famous painter and sculptor. And that group of clouds over there gives me the impression of the stoning of Stephen. I can see the Apostle Paul standing to one side. And Lucy congratulates him. Uh-huh, that's very good. What do you think you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown replies, well, I was going to say that I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I've changed my mind. <laughs> Charlie Brown changed his thinking on the matter based on what somebody else thought. Now, I wouldn't want to over-antalyze a comic strip, but we can all relate to Charlie Brown. And that's why we enjoy reading comic strips like that so much, because we see a lot of ourselves in how he thinks. What he says and what he does usually has a lot to do with how he feels about himself, which is usually not very good, about who he thinks he really is, which is usually not much, and what he thinks others think of him, which is usually not very much. And so Charlie Brown, he acts, he responds based on what he thinks about himself, what others he thinks thinks about him, and uh, don't we all do that? I think we do. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of the, the Great Awakening in our country, talked about how our thoughts and our imaginations affect our mind and then what we do. And he wrote, The ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. What we think governs what we say and what we do. We are who we think we are. Jesus, or the Proverbs 23, 7 said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We respond and we act based on, on what we think. All of our actions, all of our reactions, everything we do begins in the mind. You know, one of the most helpful things that we can learn about the Christian thought life is that all sin begins in our thoughts, which the Bible calls the heart. Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Sin begins in the images and the thought process, processes of our mind. In other words, no one commits outward sins without first committing them in his mind. And that's why Jesus said, if you've lusted in your heart, then you have committed adultery. The overall theme of these first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4 is standing firm in the Lord. And what Paul wants us to see in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4 is he tells us we are to think on these things He's showing us that in order to be spiritually stable, in order to stand firm in the Lord, we must change our thinking. We must have as what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 calls the mind of Christ. We must have what uh, Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. We must take every thought captive into obedience of Christ. 
If we want to be spiritually stable, if we want to grow in godliness, if we want to win the battle over sin on the thought level, then it is crucial that our thought life is brought into submission unto Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so crucial for each one of us. A little over a year ago, Margaret Thatcher passed away. And the movie about her life, which was uh, played by Meryl Streep, I don't know if you saw that movie. I, I just love Meryl Streep's movies. They called it The, the Iron Lady. And uh, that was a picture of Margaret Thatcher's stability. The Iron Lady's determination or decisiveness or discipline gave her the edge she needed to be the, the first woman prime minister of, of Great Britain. Uh, Margaret Thatcher understood the connection of what we think to what we are and who we become. And she advised, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. Those are pretty profound words. They describe in detail our life journey and the significance our thought life has on the future. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul exhorts us to develop a Christian thought life. If we are to maintain healthy relationships, as, as he has urged Judea and Syntyche to do in verse 2, we must develop a Christian thought life. A Christian thought life, he shows us, is also integral to our life of joy when we rejoice in the Lord always. A Christian thought life is essential to experiencing peace in every situation where our minds and our hearts are guarded in Christ Jesus. And we will see next Sunday that a Christian thought life is essential to the obedience which Paul commands us in verse 9. And then we will see in verse 11 that the thought life is at the heart of the contentment that, that Paul had learned in every situation. So succinctly here, he's saying experiencing harmony and love, joy and peace, obedience and contentment begins with the Christian thought life. And so Paul is telling us the way to be whole and stable people in our action and in our relationships with God, with one another, and within ourselves. So if you still haven't turned there yet or you still have it open, look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. The fourth verse of Philippians or the 8th verse of Philippians chapter 4, what are we to think about? Paul writes in verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now, before we look at what Paul wants us to think about here, we need to understand that this is a a process of what we could call either thinking replacement, thought replacement, or what the Bible calls the renewing of our minds where our default thinking processes automatically default to the right stuff instead of the, the wrong stuff. We must replace those thoughts that are wrong. We need to replace those that are hurtful to ourselves and to others. And that's what Paul's encouraging us to think about. All of us are guilty of what has been called stinking thinking. Those negative thoughts, those destructive thoughts which dictate our actions, control our emotions. Based on what you have experienced, based on what others have told you about you, 
based on what has been done to you, maybe over and over, your mind has been trained to think in a particular way, been trained to think in a wrong way. Part and parcel of being transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the renewing of our minds. Be transformed, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. So I want to mention just five of the errors in thinking that people tend to develop and begin to see as, as true. There could be a hundred of them. There's probably 200 of them. I probably got 600 of my own. <laughs> Those ways of thinking that are extremely destructive to ourselves and destructive to others in our relationships. These are errors of thinking that must be replaced where our thought processes must be changed and our minds renewed if we're going to have a Christian thought life. And the first error of thinking, we could call that emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. reasoning. Emotional reasoning is where fact or truth is confused with our emotions. Since I feel a certain way about things, that must be how things actually are. For example, I feel guilty, so I must be guilty. Now some of you, if you were like me, when you're in the second grade and the teacher said somebody stole such and such and I wish the, the guilty party would, uh, you know, bring that, you put it on my desk later or whatever. You know, there's some of us who, no, we didn't do it, but we sit there, we're the ones that are guilty. We take on that guilty corporateness of the, the whole class. I feel guilty, so I must be guilty. Maybe I did do it. Or I feel stupid, so I must be stupid. What did Forrest Gump's mother used to say? Stupid is as stupid does. And this error in thinking causes self-fulfilling prophecies. Since we think we are stupid, we act like we are, are stupid. And, and one interesting thing, well, let me go to the next one. Another error in thinking is jumping to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions. For example, if I go to work today when I'm feeling so low, I'm just going to feel worse. I just know it's going to make me feel worse. Things are going to get worse. And, you know, this error in thinking has two amazing abilities that need to be attached to it. And first of all, if you think things are going to get worse because you're feeling low, it requires that you be a mind reader. You have to assume the thoughts and intentions of others, such as, I know they were all laughing at me. Well, well how do you know that? And it also requires fortune-telling anticipating the worst and taking that as fact, such as, I'm definitely going to fail. Now, when you jump to conclusions, you have to assume what other people are thinking, and you have to assume how the things are going to, to turn out. And so, jumping to conclusions just puts you in a whole downgrade of, of wrong thinking. A third common error in thinking is all-or-nothing attitude, such as, if I can't do this perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. If I can't do it to my satisfaction, or I can't do it to somebody else's satisfaction. Some people will see not getting an A on an exam as a failure, even though they got 85%. And the thinking in this way, it's disheartening, it's demoralizing, it seeks to heighten the negative mood. And then there is mental filtering. I notice and think about my failures much more than my successes. There are all these things come in, and then I just filter that through and go, yeah, I, I just think about that. Um, you know, once we do that, then we tend to resist any activity that we may have a chance to succeed. I'm just going to fail anyway. Uh, a lot of us are good at overgeneralizing. 
Nothing ever goes well for me. I always, I never, they always. But perhaps the most common error in thinking is labeling. I'm a loser, or I'm a victim, or I'm an ugly, I'm, I'm an ugly, whatever that is. I'm ugly, you know, nobody likes me. You know, these are all unhelpful and destructive thought patterns. And they creep into our minds, and these are just a few examples. There's probably lots of them. And we each have our own that determine what we say and how we act. And these are examples of what could be hundreds of errors in our thinking that need to be replaced. Our minds need to be renewed. If we are, going to, have a, if we are to have a Christian thought life, if we are to maintain healthy relationships, Christian relationships with one another, if we are to experience joy and know the peace of God, where we live a life of obedience to Christ and where we are content in every and all circumstances, we must change our thoughts. And that's what Paul is getting at in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And he gives us eight examples of what we are to think about. He says, dwell on these things. Think on these things. The word means to ponder these things. I like the New King James Version. It translates it, meditate. On these things, because that's the idea here. Let your mind dwell on these things. First of all, we are to meditate on whatever is true. Whatever is true. Too often we begin to believe something is true based on what we feel like, or, or just because somebody else said it's true. But Paul is teaching that the Christian thought life should be focused on the great truths of Scripture. How do we know what is true? Even though scripture is not mentioned here, we know that the only source of knowing what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise is God's word. Thinking on whatever is true is reading, it's analyzing, it's studying, it's meditating on the word of God. As I like to put it, what is meditating on the word of God? It's parking yourself in a particular point of scripture and just digging into it in your mind and thinking about it. Because the remaining seven virtues that Paul mentions here are all based on the truth of God's word. We begin with God's word, with what is true. So it should come to no surprise to us that the prophet insists, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. One of the sovereign remedies against sin is to spend time, much time, thoughtful time, meditative time, in the scriptures, because it's impossible to get rid of the trash that's been coming into our minds without replacing it with an indifferent, a completely different type of thinking. When computers were first coming out and uh, people were learning how to use computers, there was a, a, a famous uh, quote that said, G-I-G-O, remember that? Garbage in, garbage out. In other words, the information you get out of the computer is only as good as the information you put into the computer. Whatever we take in to our minds is going to spill out. We watch some stupid, trashy movie late at night and wonder why we're anxious in the morning, or we have sinful thoughts about that, or why I'm complaining because, well, I've watched a lot of things to complain about, and I've been taught that those are okay to complain about. And instead of filling our minds with God's word first thing in the morning, we turn on the news, we turn on the talking heads, because we want to find out what's going on in the world, 
Now I'm feeling guilty. Am I guilty? Yes. <laughs> On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus prayed for his followers in these terms. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And there's no enduring sanctification from the truth of the gospel than when the truth of the gospel takes hold in our minds. The way we avoid being conformed to this world, being squeezed into its mold, as the J.B. Phillips translation says, the way we are transformed into conformity with Christ is by the renewing of our minds. I think there's a great danger in American Christianity today to make very little effort to thank God's thoughts after him, to hide his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. To hide God's word in our hearts as opposed to thinking of our mind as a computer where we just store it and file it up there someplace. To hide it in our hearts means, we, yes, we memorize it, but we read it, we reread it, we think about it, we turn it over in our minds until it transforms our thinking. Our mind is not a computer, but it's a wonderful gift of God where, where our thoughts can be transformed to Christ. Because only that kind of taking in God's word well, will change us from the unbiblical views that we're constantly bombarded with. We are to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. The second example Paul uses and what we are to think about is whatever is honorable. Some translations say whatever is noble. The word means that which inspires reverence or awe, dignified. Worthy of respect. And the Greek word is often translated dignity in our New Testaments. In fact, dignity is a character quality required of deaconesses and deacons in the list of qualifications in First Timothy. They are to be men and women of dignity. Elders should keep their children under control, Paul says in First Timothy 3, 4, with all dignity. We've all seen it otherwise in Albertsons on Third Isle. <laughs> all Christians should lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. D.A. Carson describes dignity this way. It means that Christians are to take life seriously. We are not to be silly goof-offs and treat life as a perpetual joke. We live in light of eternity, keeping in mind the uncertainty of this short life and the reality of heaven and hell. That doesn't mean we can't appreciate clean humor, but our overall tenor should communicate to a lost world that they must stand before a holy God someday. Think on these reverent themes. And thirdly, we are to think about whatever is right. The word that is translated right should be translated righteous here. Think on what is righteous. That's the word that's used here. The word is used of God himself. God is righteous. It's used of the righteousness of Christ. When, when we receive Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness. It, it describes whatever is in perfect harmony with God and with his, his laws, his standards as revealed to us in Scripture. We are to think on matters that are consistent with the law of God and what he has said. We are to think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is righteous, and then Whatever is pure. The word translated pure refers primarily to ceremonial purity, where they would go into the temple and they would do certain things and rituals to, to symbolize purity. But it was also uh, 
speaks of moral purity in the scriptures, especially in keeping our bodies undefiled by abstaining from, from sexual sin. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul warns, But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the knowledge of God in Christ. As Christians, we must say no to our sensually impure society and culture and focus on moral purity. Then he says, think on whatever is lovely. This is the only time the word that is translated lovely is used in all of, of scripture here. Uh, it means what is pleasing, what is agreeable, what is attractive. You know, at times we find ourselves attracted to what is, is evil, but here the word refers to those things that are both pure and attractive. As Christians, we recognize that uh, who is most inherently attractive? Who is most apparently lovely? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should think often of our lovely Savior who gave his life on the cross. Then he says, think on whatever is of good repute. This comes from a compound word meaning to speak well of something. We get our word euphemism from it. A euphemism is a good sounding expression. It just has a nice sound to it, a nice tone to it. It comes from this Greek word. It, it refers to something that deservedly enjoys a good reputation. You know, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where love believes the best about another person. In other words, love refuses to believe an evil report about a brother or sister. How often times do we hear such and such about so and so and oh, that must be true because they said it. You know, if we were thinking of what's of good repute, we'd go, no, you know, I, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to go there. I'm definitely not going to expand it to other people because that's just not thinking of what is, is lovely about a person. In the last two ways of thinking, Paul changes the sentence structure. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The word excellent means moral virtue. It's a word that's common in Greek literature, but it's the only time Paul uses the word. Peter uses it in 2 Peter chapter 1. And he talks about excellence as being the first quality that we add to our faith. Okay, by faith you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. So you have faith. Now what do you do? You're a new Christian. What do you add to, to faith? And Paul says in the second letter, verse 3, saying that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Then he says in verse 6, Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. Once you become a Christian, then supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge. How often do we think, okay, now I've become a Christian, what's the first thing I've got to do? I've got to get truth, right? That's true. But Paul says the next thing you do is apply moral 
excellence. That means as a new Christian, one of the first things you do is to stop any behavior that God has shown you that is not in line with his moral values as revealed in Scripture. Now we think, that might be a tough thing to do in today's society and those kind of things. Well, when's the last time you read the Ten Commandments? <laughs> you know, or the Sermon on the Mount. Or Paul's list of the deeds of the flesh. So even as we get into God's Word, we start to grow in faith. We are to say, okay, when I come to something that God says I shouldn't be participating in or doing something, Paul's saying, that's not morally excellent. You know, ascribe to moral excellence. And then to sum it up, he says, think on anything worthy of praise. Anything worthy of praise. Now the word praise is used both of what is praiseworthy to God and what is praiseworthy in people. This is not just praising God, but this is finding what is praiseworthy in other people. You know, of course, every attribute of God and every deed of God is praiseworthy. And so we should think about God, how great he is on the marvelous works he has done to God be the glory, great things he has done, those kind of praiseworthy things, both in creation, both in history and in our own lives, what we see him doing. But we should also be this way towards other people, even those people who are in the world. And you go, how can we be praiseworthy of them? Because we should be gracious on focusing on their strong points and their good qualities and not constantly tearing them down for their bad Quality. Especially if they're unbelievers, they don't have any choice in these things. Even though they are depraved by nature, because of God's common grace in them and because he created each one of them, even unbelieving people can be kind, can't they? They can be caring. They can be loving. And ultimately, these qualities, even in unbelievers, still bring glory not to themselves but bring it to God because he is kind even though they're not even thinking about it when they do a kind deed they're manifesting and showing something of the God who is kind and we should be appreciative and affirming towards people rather than always being negative and critical about them now that's a tough list and I know we went through it very quickly how do we change our thought life? How do we obey what Paul is telling us here? How do we control what we think? How do we develop a Christian thought life? How do we replace those destructive, stinking thinking thoughts about God and about others and about ourselves and what God wants us to think? We do, to do that, we must control what comes in to our minds. We've got to control the intake. So let me give you five practical ways to do this. I borrowed these from Pastor Stephen Cole. I found these uh, on a website called Bible.org. If you ever have a Bible question, if you really want to know something, if you want to dig deeply into something, go to Bible.org because it's a website put together by the Dallas Theological Faculty, Theological um, Seminary Faculty. And then, of course, they have other... I used to be able to say Theological Society. No, anyway... You know, Bible.org, it's a good place to go. Because Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring of life. To obey what Paul is saying, we must exercise control over our thought life. So this involves at least five things. 
First of all, we need to have the mind of Christ. And we only get the mind of Christ through conversion, through accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. Before a person knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Bible says that person has a depraved mind. He lives in the lust of his flesh. He indulges in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And so God must supernaturally raise us up from our state of being dead in our trespasses and sins and impart to us a new nature so that we are able to obey him and have our minds renewed. Paul says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And then he goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit gives us the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live in obedience to God. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually appraised. So in order to control our thinking, in order to be transformed in the image of Christ in our thinking, we must be born again. We must come to Christ in salvation. And secondly, we must clean out and block out sources for sinful thoughts. We cannot have a pure thought life without first ridding ourselves of those things which defile us. It's like trying to clean yourself up while you're lying in a mud hole. The first step is to get out of the mud and get a source of soap and water. To allow things into our lives which promote sensuality, which promote greed and sexual impurity, crude language, violence, hate, lo hatred, love of self, and all those things. We must get to where we are blocking those out or we can't grow in holiness. The psalmist said, put no vain thing before your eyes. And my wife always reminds me, probably the vainest thing is that boob tube that we put there, that stupid thing that we put in our living rooms that controls our lives. And uh, Pastor Kent Hughes in his book, Disciplines and of a Godly Man, writes, I am aware of the wise warnings against using words like all, every, and always in what I say. Absolutizing one's pronouncements is dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here it is. Is it, is it, it is impossible for any Christian who spends the bulk of his evenings, month after month, week upon week, day in and day out, watching the major TV networks or contemporary videos to have a Christian mind. This is always true of all Christians in every situation. And Pastor Stephen Cole adds, it needs to be said, you will not be a godly person if you do not control the TV, videos, movies, music, magazines, books, and even the radio programs you take in. If something is polluting you or tempting you, get rid of it and make plans to avoid it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't have Christian thinking about what's going on in the world as we watch the news and, and, and those kind of things, but... Even when it comes to movies and videos, we have to fast forward on quite a bit and then we have to explain to our kids, why are we watching this if you have to have fast forward and we miss so much? But, uh, you know, one of the things that I, that I put as a filter is, is, does the movie, does the TV program have a redemptive theme? 
Are the themes of love and compassion, do they, they win out? Is there redemption at the end? Is there reconciliation at the end? And uh, those kind of things. You know, it's just helpful. I knew a guy that really had a problem when he would get out on the road into motels and uh, turn on the TV, you know, and he really struggled with temptation and that kind of thing. And he says, I, I finally figured out what to do. And I said, well, well, what's that? He says, I go into the motel room. I take that TV, I unplug it from the wall, even if it's permanently wired in, they can fix it. <laughs> and he says, I go through the effort to take it and turn it towards the wall, and then I say, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, you know how hard it is to plug that back in, turn it around, and sin and watch that movie after you've done all of that? <laughs> it's just impossible. What are those things that we can find a way to turn away from those? And thirdly, to exercise control over our thought life, we must take in God's word from every source. Take in God's word from every source. Read it daily. If you're not a reader, listen to it on tape or, or, or CD. With all the technology available today and CD players and everything else, we, we have no excuse for not saturating our mind with scriptures. Once again, Kent Hughes, Kent Hughes also says, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You can't be influenced by that which you do not know. And I cannot encourage you enough to memorize and meditate on the verses of Scripture, especially those areas where you may struggle with things. Unless the Word of God is in your heart, God cannot use it when you are, are tempted. Even Jesus, when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, every time, what did Jesus say? It is written. And he quoted the word of God. You know, you don't need to read a newspaper every day. You don't need to listen to Fox News every day. But you desperately need to read your Bible every day. Or find that way to, to absorb and listen to God's word. It's like a, a daily shower. It cleanses off the dirt of the world. We are cleansed by the washing of the word. There's a fourth thing you can do to exercise control over your thought life. And that is... Expose your mind to the teaching and examples of the great Christians down through history. Expose your mind to the great teaching and example of Christians down through history. Again, one of the neat things about modern technology that we have today, we can listen to or we can read sermons from godly men. The sermons and commentaries of John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozier, who's one of my favorites. J.C. Ryle, Martin Lloyd-Jones, other giants of the faith, they're available in print and in other ways to, to listen to them. Read the biographies of godly men and women. Read about Susanna Wesley or Sarah Edwards or Corey Tenbun. I, I like to read about the godly lives of men like John Adams, second president of the United States, Jonathan Edwards, Stonewall Jackson, Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain, you probably never heard of Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain. He was a theology professor, and uh, he found himself being a colonel and then a general in the 20th Maine. Uh, it was his doing that turned the tide at Gettysburg and turned the tide of the entire war. Godly man. One of the neat ironies about Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain is that he was field promoted to basically what we would call a five-star general today because he was wounded for the fifth time on the battlefield and they thought he was going to die. And so Abraham Lincoln promoted him a battlefield promotion and he lived. 
and he went on to fight more wars. And when the South, the Confederacy, surrendered to the, to the Northern Army, uh, Colonel Chamberlain, this godly man, outranked Ulysses S. Grant. And so Robert e. Lee's sword was pre presented to Colonel Lawrence Chamberlain. You know, those things where we live in the most horrible, people live in the most, you know, the Civil War was the most horrible things imaginable and how they lived their godly life, lived out the life of Christ. Read about these people. With few exceptions, avoid most of the modern Christian bestsellers. Read and spend your time in the works of those who have stood the test of time. These men and women who have walked with God, and, and this will feed your soul. And lastly, to gain control over your thought life, listen to wholesome music, especially the great hymns of the faith. Stephen Cole again writes, I enjoy many of the praise choruses, especially those that are taken directly from Scripture, but also some of the great hymns have a history of sustaining God's people down through the years and they are doctrinally meaty. The Wesleys used hymns to teach theology to many people who are illiterate. Get recordings of the great hymns and play them until you know them by heart. They will fill your mind with wholesome truth. A number of years ago, the news media picked up on the story of a woman known as Garbage Mary. Garbage Mary lived in a smelly Chicago tenement amid mounds of garbage. She spent her time running through the trash cans. She would bum cigarettes off of her neighbors. Police took her to a psychiatric hospital after she was stopped for questioning and she was found to be in a confused state of mind. And when they went to her filthy apartment, they were astounded to find stock certificates, bank books, indicating that she was worth more than a million dollars. She was the daughter of a wealthy Illinois lawyer. It's a pathetic story, but it pictures the lives of many professing Christians who could be immersing their thought life in that which is true, dignified, right, pure, lovely, good repute, that which is virtuous, worthy of praise, but instead they surround themselves with moral filth, wallowing daily in raunchy TV programs, polluting their minds with the sword stories of this condemned world, rather than focusing their thought life on the things of God and Christ. An old Indian Christian was explaining to a missionary that the battle inside of him was like a black dog fighting a white dog. And the missionary asked him, which one wins? And he said, the one that I feed the most. The one that I feed the most. Paul says, feed your mind on the pure truth of God's word. Shall we pray? Father, some of the things that we've talked about this morning are the most difficult to do in a society, in a culture, in a world where it comes at us from from every different direction. And even when we watch the political talk shows, Father, we see people coming from a, a non-biblical, a non-true point of view where they just want to get across whatever it is they want, Father. It's a difficult world to, to live in and, and to renew our minds. But it just reminds us 
even more so, the importance of getting into your word, of hearing your word on a regular and daily basis, of taking that opportunity to listen to great hymns of the faith and listen to those who are teaching God's word, to get into the word ourselves. Father, I just pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would, would give us that ability to begin even today, Lord, to make your truth the priority of our thought lives, whatever it is in each one of us, Lord. We thank you for that. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. And for this we pray in Jesus' name.